As you take your seats, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to the gospel of Matthew as we continue to work through the Sermon on the Mount. Your eyes do not deceive you. There is a six that is part of the scripture reading today. We are moving from chapter 5 into chapter 6. Now, here's the, the chapter, the, the way that the, 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 the past editors have provided chapters and verse numbers are really helpful. Have you ever, have you ever recognized when you're reading in the New Testament and, and one of the New Testament authors refers to something in the Old Testament and how often they'll say something like, you know, like where it says, <laughs> you know, where it says back, you know, where Isaiah said, right? They're never very specific because uh, they didn't have those versifications early on. So the chapters and verses are very helpful for us to be able to find certain things in the scripture. Now, the, the, the problem that can come from the chapters and the verses is it can trick your mind into thinking that because we're moving into a new chapter, that we're moving into something new. And we are not. Jesus would not be considered a very good preacher today. Because he doesn't have these nice, neat, simple little outlines uh, through which he preaches. He is preaching one long, sustained argument in which he keeps building on top of what he has already said. And the way uh, Matthew has arranged this gospel, he has already been setting us up in chapters 1 through 4. He has been setting us up for this sermon. So for context, as we move into chapter 6 today, I'm going to start back at chapter 1. No, I'm just joking. I, do, I am going to read from a couple places in 3 and 4 um, to help us um, as we work our way back into chapter 5 and we, we begin to, to hear what Jesus uh, begins to say in chapter 6. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Down into chapter 4, Jesus Having been baptism, having gone through his temptation in the wilderness, begins his ministry. And we are told that from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they also persecuted the prophets who were before you. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also um, have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father Forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, make your word real to us today. 
Speak into the depths of our souls today that we would be reoriented once again to this amazing privilege and calling that we have received in Jesus Christ to be your kingdom disciples, to be your royal priesthood, to be your heavenly colony here on earth who, like our father Abraham, is looking for a better country that is yet to come, whose builder and maker is you. Father, we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I may only be speaking to a small fraction of people in the room right now. But do you remember Bizarro Superman? All right, I saw a couple of hands. I feel like Billy Graham every now and then. I see that hand. Bizarro Superman was Superman's opposite who lived in the bizarro world. The bizarro world was was called Hetreia, which is just earth spelled backwards. It was shaped as a cube instead of being a sphere. Everything in the bizarro world, everything about bizarro Superman was backwards and chaotic. Everything in bizarro world is imperfect, it's misspelled, and it's crooked. Even the flag, the flag has a white field with red stars in the bottom right-hand corner with vertical white and blue stripes that are, that are running on the other part of the flag, which you can picture in your mind as the exact opposite of our flag. At the deli, they would serve things in reverse order, starting with dessert, and then finishing with soup. Its currency was based on coal, and diamonds had no value. Everything in Bizarro World is the opposite. As Jerry explained to Elaine, everything is the opposite. Up is down, down is up. He says hello when he leaves and says goodbye when he arrives. Bizarro world was a counterfeit world that was the result of of trying to replicate something that ended up turning it into its opposite. Now, the reason I'm talking about this is because this is how I have been presenting the Sermon on the Mount to us. As I said way back, if, if any of you recall, when we first started chapter 5, that what Jesus is, is unfolding for us in the Sermon on the Mount are these virtues and these values and these practices that are counterintuitive, that are countercultural. And this week I, I heard a, an interview of a guy named Chris Cataldo who has written a new book on the Beatitudes called The Upside-Down Kingdom, Wisdom for Life from the Beatitudes. 
And the, the title caught my, my, my eye as I saw it, you know, because it was like, yeah, this is what I have been seeing. But as I reflected this week on, on what he is attempting to do with the expression, the upside down kingdom, it hit me that I have this upside down. From the perspective of the fallen world, what Jesus is communicating sounds bizarre. But it sounds bizarre because it is what is true and good and beautiful. And you and I live in a world context in which we breathe the air of something that is finite, that is broken, that is cursed, and yet we tend to orient the framework of our minds and our hearts and our wills according to this world. So that as Jesus is expressing the virtues and the values of the kingdom of heaven, it sounds bizarre to us, Not because it's bizarre, but because we are. We are not what God originally intended us to be. And this world is not what God originally intended it to be. Now, God always intended that this world would be finite. Eden was not supposed to be permanent. If it was, there would not have been a test. But as those who are part of the Reformed world and who embrace covenant theology, we know that there was something that is greater that was being offered to Adam, to Eve, and to all of their posterity that hinged on their devotion to God. And if they had trusted him, been devoted to him, then there was something better than Eden that was coming. Our first parents didn't only lose Eden for us. They lost that greater thing that was coming as well. And what Jesus has come to do is to restore the kingdom purposes of God for his people. And he has come and to introduce, he has come to reveal, he has come to preach the kingdom of heaven. Now Matthew is unique here in the way that he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, where you will see the other gospel writers using the phrase kingdom of God. It's not that there are multiple different kingdoms, as I was taught Back in my dispensational past, the kingdom of God is not for the church and the kingdom of heaven isn't for the Jews. All right, there's one kingdom. But Matthew is very purposefully presenting this kingdom in such a way as it was revealed by Jesus and revealed in Jesus that there is a better world that is utterly and completely and totally opposite of this world. 
And what you and I have the challenge of doing in our faith is to constantly reorient ourselves away from the temporary and the finite to that which is eternal. And to live within the temporary, to live within the finite in light of the eternal. This reorientation. John the Baptist and Jesus refer to as repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is not that Jesus is presenting to us a bizarro world that is, that is the opposite of this. We live in the bizarro world, which is the opposite of what God has always intended, purposed, designed, and is moving us toward. And it is the proper recognition that this is the bizarro world that helps us rather than to respond with the chafing that we have talked about at these different virtues and values and practices that Jesus has been promoting here in the Sermon on the Mount, that rather than, than uh, seeing them as foreign and responding to them uh, in the difficulties with which I know I am responding to them, and I, I know you are too, it's not that that teaching is foreign. It's that the foreignness of the bizarre world is so deeply seated within us that when the true and the good and the beautiful is presented to us, it's difficult for us to embrace. It is challenging for us to embody. And we really struggle to extend this to others who are languishing in the bizarro world. It is not that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. It's right-side up, but we live in an upside-down world. And so Jesus here is reforming, as we've been talking about, that moral imagination of the people of God so that our virtues, our values, and our practices are not coming from the bizarro world, but instead are coming from the world that is yet to come. Jesus is the king of that other realm. And he is the king of this realm as well. But in his earthly ministry, he has come in such a way to reveal that greater realm. That realm that no eye has seen or nor ear has heard what God is preparing for those who love him. It is, it, is the, the, it is the world that is revealed through the spirit that is perceived by faith. And, and as we take that world in through the means of spirit-fueled, uh, grace-empowered, uh, the means of grace, that we start 
to reorient or to be reoriented to that realm. And the way that Matthew sets it up, this is why I wish I could have started back in chapter 1, is the realm of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is the king of, that Jesus has come to reveal, that Jesus has come to preach. That kingdom of heaven is a realm of the fullness of the unopposed glory of the triune God. Jesus is not just a way to have a better life within the bizarro world. Now, for those who are in Christ, you do enjoy a better life in the bizarro world. But the goal is not to just simply give you a better life in the bizarro world. It's to draw you into that realm of the fullness of the unopposed glory of the triune God. Where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always dwelt in the fullness of the manifestation of the glory of who they are. As Jesus says, there is a blessing coming where we will see God. But we don't see him yet. Did you catch how many times in the reading of of five moving into six that, that Jesus talks about our Father who is in heaven, who sees us in secret. We don't see Him, but He sees us. There is something about the nature here of what Jesus is revealing right now of this kingdom of heaven, that this realm of the unopposed glory of the triune God is something that will come in its fullness even as it has begun to come in the arrival of Christ, in what he is revealing of the Father, and what he is preaching. Did you hear the way the Beatitudes themselves are framed? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is what we call in theology, theology an already nature of the kingdom, and there is a not yet coming. The fullness is not here, but the reality has come because Christ has come, and he has preached and revealed this kingdom. Jesus revealed the unopposed glory of the triune God in his devotion to the Father, in his reliance on the Holy Spirit as the triune God was working together to accomplish their eternal purposes and plans in redemption, in sanctification, in justification, adoption, and glorification. 
Jesus reveals to us what it looks like to, to, to enjoy and to embrace that unopposed kingdom that, or that kingdom of the unopposed glory of the triune God. But here's what Matthew has been doing since chapter 1. This king, who is the king of that realm, who, who embodies that realm, who lives in the devotion of that realm, he takes on flesh and he is immediately opposed. Herod has all the male babies two years and younger killed because he is threatened by this newborn king who comes as the representative of the realm of the unopposed glory of God. The church opposes their king as the scribes and Pharisees from the very beginning are at odds with Jesus, arguing with Jesus, denying Jesus, re, re, you know, taking his, what he is saying about the word and about wisdom, and they are rejecting it, and they are standing on, on their own interpretations of God's word. They're standing on their own virtues and values and practices that are opposed to the king and the kingdom of the realm of the unopposed glory of the triune God. The opposition to Jesus is seen by Satan as Jesus goes through that, that wilderness temptation where, where Satan and the, and the dark forces are arrayed against him. And as he reveals the glory of that kingdom, but not in the way that Satan tempts him to do, he reveals the glory of that kingdom by expressing the unopposed glory of the triune God as he trusts his Father and as he devotes himself to the Father even in the midst of attack and weakness and hunger. You see, Jesus is coming as a, represent, uh, as a representative of something that doesn't fit within the bizarro world. And so he seems bizarre. And the values and the virtues and the practices of his kingdom seem bizarre. But they are the only way to experience and to enjoy that kingdom. What Jesus has done up to this point, I've, I've been describing in terms of virtues, values, practices. What I want to do now is change the imagery a little bit. Because throughout chapter 5, what Jesus has been describing for us is what we would uh, describe uh, using the metaphor of posture. Now, you are experts in American posture. Did you know that? If you're not an expert in anything else, you're an expert in American posture. You can read 
the body language of the people that you live around when they also are coming from your culture. What, what makes things shaky is when you get the joy of interacting with someone who's from a different culture, where, where maybe in that culture, the way that you express interest and intimacy in a conversation is by getting really close to someone's face. Have you ever had that experience when you're talking with someone from a different culture and they get right up in your personal space and you kind of take a step back? Because in our culture, getting up into someone's personal space is an act of aggression. And without you having to think about it, you respond according to what's happening because you're an expert in posture, at least in American posture. The posture, metaphorically speaking here, that Jesus is describing in chapter 5 is a posture of humility, mercy, justice, righteousness. These are not four things that typically go together at least not within our culture. Jesus is holding all of these things together through this lens of a posture of someone who isn't coming in all sure of himself, ready to just bless everyone around them, uh, around him so that they you know, will, will think he's awesome. How many times do you read in the Gospels where Jesus manifests the power of that kingdom by healing someone and then says, shh, don't tell anyone about this. Even as he exercises his prerogatives of the king of that kingdom, he does so in humility. This posture of a humble reliance and devotion to God, a posture of of one who is not self-sure but is confident in God himself, one who uses his power and authority not to merely benefit himself but for the sake of others, where the humble, merciful righteousness of of this king himself is put on display in love, that self-sacrificial love of the cross. The posture here that Jesus is describing of himself and what he is describing of his kingdom disciples is a humble, merciful approach to righteousness that recognizes its full dependence and devotion to God and not to ourselves, not to our preferences, not trying to get God to do things in a way that fit our bizarre orientation. We have to be shaken out of that. As we have been saying through this, we have to be emptied in order to be filled. 
We have to be reoriented. And the height of that reorientation, Jesus tells us here, is the way that we manifest his sonship in how we love and who we love. Jesus here at the culmination at the end of chapter 5, he, he gives us two amazing realities that, that are true for, God, for, for Christ, but they are certainly true for his kingdom disciples. We are never more like Christ. We are never more like the Father. We are never more like that kingdom of the unopposed glory of God than when we love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute us and forgive as we are forgiven. You are never more like Christ than when you love your, enemy, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and forgive as you are forgiven. That requires a posture of humble, dependent love. Not a beat your chest, let me show you how strong I am. Because what Jesus tells us also is that we are never more like the enemies of God than when we only love those who love us back. Jesus says, don't even tax collectors love those who love them back? Don't even Gentiles love those who love them back? Do you notice what he's doing here, by the way? It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. If you only love those who love you back, you are acting like an enemy of God. I mean, don't even Auburn fans love those who love them back? Does that bring it home for you? You're never more like God. You are never more a manifestation of the kingdom, of the fullness of the unopposed glory of God than when you demonstrate your sonship by loving your enemy, praying for those who persecute you, and forgive as you're forgiven. And you are never more like an enemy of God than when you only love those whom you've deemed worthy of your love. You see, what Jesus is trying to get us to wrestle with, beloved, it's not just the opposition that existed from the religious leaders of Israel. Not just the opposition that existed in the secular rule of Herod and of Caesar. He's not just trying to get us to consider the opposition 
from Satan and his dark forces. He's asking us to consider the opposition that exists within our own hearts. To the degree that you are willing to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, and to forgive as you forgive, or as you are forgiven, to the degree you are willing to do that, is the degree to which you are living as a kingdom citizen rather than a citizen of the bizarro world. The posture that we are to take on metaphorically and and spiritually in that humble, merciful, righteous devotion and dependence There is no better way to understand that posture than in the practice of prayer. In the Old Testament, there there isn't technically a word for prayer. The word that is translated prayer is always a word that means to bow or to prostrate. I always have to check that. Got to remember the R to prostrate. Praying in the Old Testament is always pictured in the posture of the physical posture of the body because the physical posture of the body of being on bended knee or laying flat on the ground, the posture that that you see physically is expressing the metaphorical spiritual posture of the heart that is praying because it knows that it has no strength within itself and that the only way to live as a manifestation of the kingdom of the unopposed glory of God as someone who still does oppose that glory, the only way that we can do this is renewing our trust and our devotion and our dependence on God in prayer. And so as we transition into chapter 6, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to move from the description of this posture of humble, this this posture of humility, this posture of merciful righteousness, the the posture of dependence and devotion. He's going to move from that posture to four very specific practices that reveal that posture. Acts of charity, prayer, fasting, and investing in that kingdom of the unopposed glory of God, investing financially in the coming of that kingdom as it continues to break forth within the bizarro world. This is where those virtues and values find tangible expression in not simply what we think or what we believe, but what we do 
as we sacrificially take up the love of Christ and we reveal the cross of Christ, not through a beating of our chest and calling attention to ourselves and trying to, to out-bully our bullies, but through a humble, dependent, loving, merciful righteousness that reveals to the bizarro world that there is a greater kingdom than what is here. And the means by which you enter that kingdom is through a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the scribes who loved to draw the attention to themselves rather than putting it on God. What do you want? What do you want? What do you crave for your lives and for the life of this church? If you want to be a church that embraces and enjoys, that, that, that embodies and expresses the kingdom of the, the fullness of the unopposed glory of God. The way we will do that is by taking up the cross and living in the sacrificial love of Christ to such a degree that the people around us will stumble over us they will, they will not like our approach to things because it will be so weird and so foreign and so strange that the only explanation for our love and our practice will be that we are those who are partaking in something that is divine because we will be ambassadors of that kingdom of the unopposed glory of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is not easy to follow you, but not because there's anything wrong with you, not because there is anything off in what you teach, what you do, what you require, because all of, of what you require, all of what you reveal is is nothing other than yourself. But Father, we so often forget how deep the sin nature in us runs. We forget how easy it is to be tempted by the bizarro world. How, how easy it is to want you to just give us a better existence in the bizarro world. And we are willing to embrace the trinkets of something that is finite and passing away instead of receiving the depths of the eternal realities that you've already gifted us in Christ as in Christ you have blessed us with every blessing of the spiritual places. And so, Lord, help us to, to have a faith that not only embraces the, the truth that you have revealed, but who values it, Lord. Who allows it to remake us and to reshape us and to reform us. 
where we will live differently because of who you are and the way that you, that you, in, you dwell within us. As you have made us your Eden. And as you are drawing us to something that Eden never could have been. As you draw us to the eternal realities of a realm in which the fullness of your glory is unopposed. And so, Lord, help us to to live with the humility of looking into our own hearts and minds to find the ways that we are still opposed to you so that we would be reoriented to that greater reality that has already become ours because we do indeed, Lord, We need you. And so, Lord, help us to imbibe these, this kingdom glory. But to do so, to take up your humble love. Help us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us and to forgive as we are forgiven in Christ. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.